Welcome to Boston Basic Income. I'm Alex Howlett. This week's topic is neoliberalism, which is a term that a lot of you guys may have heard before. Often it comes along with negative connotations, but I think something that everybody agrees on is that neoliberalism is an ideology that's associated with embracing markets as a tool for prosperity. So I think anyone who's for or against neoliberalism and all the different interpretations that people have, that's something they agree on. It's a pro-market ideology. Some of us listened to a podcast episode from last year, the indicator from Planet Money, where they talk about the neoliberal shill of the year award, and they have these brackets, and they're trying to like own the term neoliberal as a positive thing. I'm going to start by playing a little clip from that. What neoliberalism basically said was markets are not like an end. Markets are a means to an end. And we want to harness markets to make everyone wealthier, to make society more equitable, and, and to make the world a better place. Harness the power of markets to make the world a better place. That sounds pretty good. And that sounds compatible with what we want from basic income. Because if you give everyone money, then that allows markets to work better for the benefit of the people. I want to go around the room and get people's initial thoughts on neoliberalism, what you think about it, and to what extent it feels like something that could go along with basic income in a positive way. Sometimes a criticism of basic income is that it's described as a neoliberal Trojan horse. Like people are trying to use basic income to shrink the government and get the markets to do everything for us and that kind of thing. But maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe the markets could be used better for the benefit of people. So we'll go around the room. We will start with Derek and then and Bethany and go ahead, Derek. To preface it, I think a, a useful preface would be that anyone who's advocated for basic income vocally or publicly has probably had the experience of being assigned a label. Sometimes they might be called neoliberal, but other times they might be called a socialist or a communist or a capitalist, right? And I think that if you find yourself in that position where you're getting contradictory labels, it gets you to think more about well, what are the definitions of these terms and then what do people mean when they use them? The definitions that I heard in this podcast clip and that this were very, very broad definition of harnessing markets to benefit society, by that definition, I think a lot of people who don't call themselves neoliberals or people who don't like neoliberalism would even fit under that description, right? So by definition, even in like really stringent regulation of markets, like taxes and restrictions could be seen as a way of harnessing, right? I mean, that's what a harness is. It takes something that would otherwise kind of roam freely and then you direct it, you shape it in some way. The problem there is that, you know, I don't think that actually really gets at what a lot of people use the word neoliberalism to refer to, which is a little more specific, which might be an economic policy paradigm that kind of hit its zenith in the 1980s and a little afterwards where maybe figures like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher advocated a kind of particular view of markets. And that period of time was associated with a particular policy paradigm. So we can get into the details of what that policy paradigm is, but I think for now, it's the important thing to note is that at that time, that policy paradigm did not include uh, basic income, which is by any measure a pretty significant change. It's a pretty different policy, right? So that changes it. We might need a new term to describe people who would say, oh, we should harness markets using a basic income, right? Neoliberal might not, that might be confusing to use that term. And then I guess I would also want to add that like, um, just for me personally, and the particular basic income policy paradigm that I've become convinced of and I'm interested in, that is actually in some ways the opposite of the policy paradigm that was used during the zenith, the 1980s. You know, it doesn't mean we're not using markets for the better humanity, but the actual policy mechanics are like almost literally inverted, right? I would say by any reasonable definition, a basic income centric view of policy probably can't be called neoliberal, I don't think.
Okay, interesting. Let's go to Bethany and then Richard. So I liked the podcast and that that quote that you had from it. It's really broad. It, it got me thinking, though, kind of like what was the potential that these academics saw? You know, assuming it wasn't just to like get rich people richer or whatever um, for for the wealth of everyone. And I think they see the potential of markets to generate a lot of wealth. And as we and many other people have talked about, the problem can then come in the distribution of it. Um, and so I think that's where basic income comes in. So just to give an example of sort of like free trade policies, we've talked in a long time ago in this meetup before about how trade is net efficient across the different countries like free trade and it, so it helps prosperity across the world rise. Um, but because people are getting their incomes from uh, jobs and, and, and jobs can sometimes be you know, more efficiently done in other countries, there can be all this pushback against something that's otherwise efficient. Um, and so I think this is maybe some of the problems that the that the sort of neoliberal philosophy may have run into is that if you pursue the benefits without fixing the distribution of money problem, uh, then then you have all these other problems crop up. So like maybe more wealth is generated, but it's it's mostly going to the top, uh, you know, wealthiest people, or it's not really distributing the way that that we would want it to. Um, which you know, I'm not an economic historian, but that's my vague sense of kind of like what has been happening since or what happened with that with that set of policies. And so I imagine some of the other things are like that too, where um, maybe they, they were efficient in theory at least, or were even efficient in terms of generating some wealth and so on, but the, but the money wasn't making it to the people that we wanted to. So I, I do feel like basic income is maybe like a missing piece in the market potential that neoliberals were seeing. I, mean, I haven't read their work, but but speculating based on the podcast. If you have a philosophy that has a missing piece or an ideology that has a missing piece, this kind of speaks to what Derek was talking about as well. Do you just throw out that label and come up with a new label that brings in the missing piece? Or do you keep your label and say, oh, we figured this thing out that works toward our goals that we already established? Let's go to Richard, Eddie, and then Austin. What I've seen is that before the whole neoliberalism took off, there actually was an attempt by Nixon to add in a basic income of sorts, a guaranteed income. But afterward, it was abandoned. So that's kind of odd in a way, because just a few years after the failed attempt, it was just completely abandoned. So what happened there? Why did something that was considered to be important was suddenly abandoned and they just went on with something that became really unpopular just four years ago? And we have no idea what's going to happen over the next four years. That's an interesting question, and I wonder if part of the answer is that they didn't really understand what they were asking for or what they were trying to achieve, and then they kind of shifted into focusing onto something else without really ever establishing it in the first place. So politically, it got somewhere, but maybe intellectually, it wasn't as far along or something like that. Let's go to Eddie and then Austin. If you look at wealth inequality as a as a measure of one of the things that you're trying to accomplish with this neoliberalism, and you look back in the past hundred years, you'll find that the markets neoliberalism kind of worked very well from the Great Depression through the 70s because wealth inequality went down and down and down, big trend for 40 years. Around the 1970s and 80s, it stopped working and the trend reversed, and wealth inequality came back up from the 70s and 80s until now. So I think that neoliberalism is missing 
missing what mainstream economics is also missing, which is a, a basic income that goes directly to the worker consumer and offsets or stabilizes the paradox of the worker consumer, which is also the paradox of productivity growth. So the paradox of the worker consumer is sort of like the paradox of thrift, but it says that you have to, instead of looking at everybody as equal agents in the economy, you have to look at the worker consumer as a separate component. What happens is that as productivity growth increases production, but at the same time reduces the labor needed to make that production, that also decreases the income to the worker consumer, which creates a paradox or creates a, a you know self-reinforcing loop where the consumer no longer has enough money to, to actually buy the consumption. One of the things that I found while I was coming up with capital consumption theory is Kondratief. Kondratief was a person in the 1900s. He was an economist in early Soviet Russia. And he looked at price data going back hundreds of years. And he found these, he thought he found empirically, he found these cycles in the data where the price would go up and down in about 50, 60 year cycles. And the Soviets, they liked this at first because they thought that it kind of meshed well with Marx's idea that there are contradictions in capitalism and that capitalism would kind of implode eventually and usher in the future era of socialism. Eventually, Chief decided, that, you know, looking at the data that rather than imploding, that cycle is self-renewing and that it goes down, but it comes back up. So the Soviets didn't like this. He ended up in jail and eventually executed for these ideas. But I think what is very interesting when we're talking about the term neoliberalism and a lot of it is thrown around by progressives who are like socialists and Marxists. There is this Marxist idea of the contradiction of capitalism, which I think is very similar to actually what capital consumption theory says. And I think it is the baby that actually should not be thrown out with the bathwater. I think that what happened in the West is that Marxism, with the Cold War of Marxism and socialism, all became kind of taboo. And you could no longer be a Marxist economist and be bona fide in the West. And so mainstream economists have kind of stopped talking and thinking about capital and labor. And if you actually take a look at capital and labor, that actually explains a lot of what is going on in the economy and what has gone on uh, for the past energy. Okay, yeah, uh, the whole conservative wave thing. I don't know uh, how much I really buy into the idea that you can run a regression on historical data to predict the future. I think that's a little bit tricky, and the idea that you can have these regularly recurring cycles that are predictable in any kind of useful way. Obviously, when we talk about basic income, we're talking about changing all of that and interrupting cycles that are there, but there's always things that are changing. So I don't really, um, not into the whole Clio dynamics, trying to fit patterns to history and extrapolating to the future, that kind of thing. Let's go to Austin. First of all, great topic, uh, especially considering the fact that don't want to derail the conversation, but my numbers say Biden's about to squeak back in. And one of the big criticisms of him is that he would be a continuation of that neoliberal paradigm, which Eddie, I think, correctly identifies the sort of start, well, as having caused inequality increasing since the 70s or 80s, right? Um, and I think uh, what he said was also pretty much on the money that part of what neoliberalism is, is a reaction against what came before that. Um, and what had happened, there'd been almost sort of a, an inclusion of some of the Mar some left-wing Marxist ideas into mainstream uh, economic thought um, in terms of if, you know, Keynes can be seen as at least thinking about the questions of lay of capital and investment and, and so forth, right? 
Um, anyhow, but then that sort of any any hint of um, socialist thinking or, or something that could sort of rhyme with Marxism uh, had had to be banished as a sort of ideological um, uh, turn occurred. Um, and I think, but just I would identify a few more characteristics about um, uh, what neoliberalism is. One is that it's it's very. I mean, Bethany touched on this. It's very much oriented around global markets not national markets. You want to open up um, to the biggest possible market possibly possible. And at the same time, it, it hasn't, as a policy platform, done a very good job, I think we can empirically say, of protecting the people who lose out in that um, transition. So that's obviously a spot where basic income could be really important. I think it's also when we talk about markets, they also mean not just a market for goods, but a market for shares. So it's it, like... There's a, there's a theory called market socialism where you have a bunch of worker-owned companies that all exchange goods in a market. That's definitely not neoliberalism, right? Because it has to be that you the, the, the shares of the companies themselves are subject to buying and selling and, and you know, speculation and so forth. Um, and that's where you see the big drive towards privatization of services, um, which is, you know, fits with the idea of small government to, to a certain extent, but it's also about, you know, big corporate, right? Um, I think there's the other, well, there was one more thing I was thinking about the, the sort of defining of neoliberalism. Oh yeah. Another one would be a, um, a sort of a commitment to balanced budgets. Right. So, and I think that is really where the wheels come off because you're, you're throwing the, 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 the government and that ties in with the small government idea as well. So you're throwing open, or you're opening all the windows of the house to the winds of, uh, of 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 the free market, and then you're also saying, but we, you know, we don't have enough blankets to go around to to get people through it. To, to, to sort of probably a bad analogy, but so at the same time as you're exposing your population to the market discipline of, um, uh, that's another reason that the, the market idea is the idea that you, you want the labor market to be disciplined, so you can't have too much welfare because you need. Um, the market to sort of compel labor and make workers efficient and competitive. You're always hearing about, you're always hearing in Australia about how we have to compete with Asia, which is kind of crazy um, because there's such different economies. And uh, so I think that, 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 that this idea of, um, of uh, you know, exposing everybody to global trade and at the same time reducing the role of the government, which might have cushioned that blow, has been a particularly um, nasty combination and that we've seen really negative effects on people. You know, you can measure the shortening lifespans in, in certain communities, um, uh, white men without education, without college educations in the United States and, and equivalent populations elsewhere, going into a real kind of malaise. Um, the extent to which a basic income would improve that, I think, is 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 uh, you know up for debate, but it, it, it would definitely be worth a try, right? Um, the uh, but the but I think it's that that combination of global trade and um, of globalization and uh, small government, like governments must balance budgets, would be probably the two things that I would say are most defining of the neoliberal turn. Uh, and, and, and probably, the, or, or at least the, 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 the combination that concerns me most and I, where I think basic income could help, but it's probably not enough on its own, um, although unless it was a global basic income.
So that raises some questions like, what is the neoliberal approach missing? And we might include basic income in that basket. And then we can say, what is the neoliberal approach doing that maybe is not helpful and maybe balancing uh, government budgets or pushing for that falls into that basket. So I like that you brought up global markets. Neoliberalism is very much associated with globalization and the Twitter icon that people add to their handles is this kind of global network. It's the blue global network icon thing. And that means you're associating yourself with the neoliberals on Twitter. So Eddie brought up the question of kind of the post-war period, and he was talking about neoliberalism succeeding during that period. And I guess a question we could ask is, do we really feel like neoliberalism was dominant during the post-war period, or did it really start gaining popularity in the 1970s and 80s after stagflation and stuff like that? And I think most of the people who associate it with, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan would say, you know, late 70s, early 80s is when neoliberalism started to become dominant. But then there's the question of uh, what should the role of government be when it comes to markets or when it comes to our society? Uh, and I think the original neoliberals, in terms of how they distinguished themselves from kind of the classical liberals, is that they saw a role for strong government and institutions in setting the parameters for the market. They didn't advocate basic income as one of the parameters that you set, but certainly basic income would fall into that category. And I think more recently, especially for the people who are coming at it from a more critical angle, they're using the term neoliberalism to basically refer to total free market fundamentalism, laissez-faire, stuff that you'd more accurately associate with the classical liberals. So I wonder um, if people are just thinking of neoliberalism as like the new wave of this thing we had before, whereas the original neoliberals were maybe in like the 1930s were maybe thinking about, well, how do you actually engineer the markets or how do you steer them in the right direction for human prosperity? Go ahead, Neil. I just wanted to point out that, that I personally agree that basic income is a good way of going, but there are many other policies which could, could be used and, and, and in the sense of the original, what I, I understood the, the original uh, definition of neoliberalism was. You could basically, when, when we say we're going to, to uh, have uh, allowed, uh, have childcare, or we say we're saying we 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 will have uh, uh, we will have we'll, we'll we'll give people money for for translating from one job to another. No, I'm not I'm not advocating those. I think they have problems. I think which which basic income also has, but not as bad. But but uh, there is no reason why you have to have a basic income, and in basic in your scare sphere of what you want to do to fix the market there's no it it's it to me it's a very good idea but there are many other ideas which have which some of which have been tried we can ask the question what kinds of things are broken in the markets and one of the things that's broken is that we don't have an effective, efficient, straightforward way to get people their money so they can buy stuff. So that's a particular problem that basic income addresses. I don't know if there are better ways of addressing that particular issue, uh, but there are certainly other things that are interfering with, with markets that, um, that we could improve on or un interfering with the ability of markets to uh, work for the benefit of people. As Eddie said, consumers need money so they can buy stuff right? You can't get markets doing the best they can for people if people don't have access to money, and it doesn't happen automatically. So go ahead, Eddie. That's really a great question, is what uh, exactly is broken? So 
um, you know, I like basic income for one thing because it's elegant. It's like, um, you know, you have all these problems associated with poverty, like people don't have enough money and time for childcare. They don't have enough money for healthcare. They don't have enough money for food and housing. And, you know, you can kind of put them all in one basket and say, look, <laughs> you know, like Alex says, there's the problem is people don't um, have enough money and we just, we need to get them the money. And then, you know, all, most of those issues are fixed. Um, if they have enough money to, to, to purchase what they need. Um, and I think that you can take it one level deeper also and ask the question, you know, if we all believe that the system is broken, the way that we get income to consumers is broken, then, you know, why is it broken? Which part of the system exactly is broken and, and in what way that creates this need? I think that's a really good point. And when it comes to neoliberalism or the term neoliberalism, uh, as Derek brought up, there's there's a practical questions of what problem do we want basic income to solve? And, you know, what do people who call themselves neoliberals uh, believe about markets and how can we move that in the right direction? And then there's the kind of semantic questions of do we want to use how, how do we want to use the term neoliberal and do we want to associate with it, own that term? Do we want to distance ourselves from that term uh, and come up with something else? Do we want to talk about market socialism as as Austin brought up? Um, so so let's go to the next clip from the podcast, which relates to this question. So neoliberal is this really loaded word. What does it even mean? Neoliberals have been blamed for everything from lowering wages for US factory workers to killing sea turtles. To some, neoliberalism means using markets and the government to make us all richer and happier. To others, it's only made the rich wealthier at the expense of the rest of us. That's kind of like the left view on neoliberalism these days. And when people on the left use the term neoliberalism, they're imagining, you know, all the people who are left behind. If you're talking to someone who maybe identifies as a neoliberal or thinks from that direction, they, they might say, well, we didn't mean to leave people behind. It wasn't supposed to do that. We still think markets are very powerful and maybe we want to figure out why those people got left behind and address that problem within a neoliberal framework. Go ahead, Derek. Well, like he says, it is a loaded term. And I guess in my personal experience, you know, to some extent, we can't help uh, what people load into various terms. But on the other hand, uh, if we have the option, it certainly is more convenient to not adopt a, a to, do, to adopt less loaded labels uh, if we're not sacrificing anything to do so. If you can talk about the policy with simple terms that everyone understands and agrees on, um, then attaching a label like that um, is really just a, I mean, you have to have a darn good reason to do it. Um, so if basic income became politically loaded, you know, I mean, I would might still defend that term because it's it's it is the policy that I'm interested in. Um, but if there's an ism attached to that, I don't know. I I just not see an interest. So I guess that is to say, I can certainly imagine self-proclaimed neoliberals advocating for basic income, and to some extent, I don't think that they're ne they necessarily acquire a contradiction by doing that. I mean, depending on which ones we're talking about. Um, but then I, see, I don't see any advantage to a vanilla basic income advocate adopting the label conceptually, intellectually, or politically. I guess the main advantage would be shock value. Oh, hey, now there's all these people going around calling themselves neoliberals and they want basic income and they're owning this term, you know, what audacity, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so it's certainly uh, maybe an, atten an attention grabbing tool um, to to adopt a loaded term and to kind of to kind of use that to represent yourself. Um, but, you know, obviously it comes with kind of all the costs that you were talking about. 
And it's interesting that you brought up basic income and whether that can become a loaded term as well, um, because for a lot of people, it does mean different things. And I kind of go through this spiel at the beginning that basic income means different things to different people. But if you go out there on the internet and look for the definition, you know, some people will say that it has to be a certain amount that meets people's basic needs. Um, and some people will say that you have to pay for it with taxes and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then if there's problems with kind of someone's version of basic income and that becomes the most popular version and it's not what we're talking about here, um, then maybe do we just, you know, abandon ship and, and, and give, throw our hands up and, and adopt a new term for, for what we're talking about when we talk about basic income, that kind of thing. And I think that can be useful too. That can be useful for um, both uh, something like neoliberalism or, or, or a term like basic income if you're trying to achieve something specific and then it becomes this, this broader thing. And the word inequality um, kind of fits into that category as well. Like people use it in so many ways and it kind of loses some of uh, its important meaning. Interestingly, I think the basic income movement does have past experience with that and currently goes through it too. And, and you can think about something like a negative income tax, which is like similar to a basic income, like really similar in the end effects, but then the way you're approaching it is different. So usually I think we adopt these terms to signal a shift, a change in a previous policy position. And so I think maybe the shift from NIT to UBI, that, that changes that. And I, I'd even noticed little bits of hints of that and how you kind of tend to prefer the term basic income as opposed to universal basic income, um, even though those are really synonyms. Like, you know, there's there's a there's a game to play there, but um, but I think what matters really is like the the definitions. And so, like the point is, is that whenever we're defining a definition, you kind of have to defend. You have to make that definition and defend it to people. And you just you just want to pick your battles with that. You want to do it when you need to. Um, basic income is the only definition we need to worry about and defend. Um, but you don't want to be attaching ones that that um that like uh, you'll start fighting windmills. You're you're going to start fighting these sort of irrelevant beliefs that other people have that aren't relevant to the debate. And that takes energy and time. And uh, it can actually uh, turn people off. It can turn people off of the idea. Yeah, I think that's right. We have to be aware of the baggage that comes along with various different labels. And if we choose to adopt a label, uh, we want to be smart about it and kind of go in with our eyes open about what, what that brings on us and what we have to address about the connotations of that label. Uh, go ahead, Bethany. I just wanted to mention a little bit more in terms of my perception of the like the ups and flows of, of this idea is it seems like people on the left and right were more favorable towards at least neoliberalism as practice, which may or may not sort of map onto the original theorists uh, in the 80s and 90s. You know, even um, Clinton and so on, I think, was like fairly free trade and even though he was a Democrat. And now it seems like both parties have moved against. Um, so often the parties are in opposition, but it seems like in this case, like both parties have moved relatively against um, this set of ideas, like both parties are talking about strengthening unions, both parties are talking about reducing free trade, um, whether or not they actually do it, you know, it's complicated, but certainly the rhetoric has, um, has changed in both parties. So I think that's interesting. And, it, you know, vaguely, I suspect one aspect of that could be that, as, as we've discussed, the policies didn't bring the kind of shared wealth that people were hoping for. Um, and so everybody's kind of turning, turning in a different direction. Um, and looking backwards, I think really to what policies worked in the past to create more shared wealth, which you know is not a non you know not an irrational thing to do, um, but that tends to be looking at things like um, stronger labor unions or uh, other kinds of things like that 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 seem to have brought uh, maybe tariffs and things that seem to have brought more distributed wealth in the past. Um, but I think basic income is a is an alternative option that maybe allows for more of that sort of wealth generation, sort of the pros of neoliberalism. 
It's an interesting thought because neoliberalism is, it's an umbrella that covers a lot of different specific things that people want to do under kind of the general idea that you want to let markets work the best that they can. So um, I think most of us here would say that tariffs are usually a bad idea. Um, and that some of us, if we're thinking about uh, basic income as the way people get their money, then maybe there's not so much of a role for labor unions, that kind of thing. Um, I think there are you know, some people here who are very strongly supportive of labor unions as well. But we can also ask the question um, of the things that we see neoliberalism doing that are harming people, uh, how many of those things wouldn't be harmful if we had a basic income in place? I really like the question that you just raised. And I think a lot of the things would not be harmful, would be just beneficial with the basic income. Perhaps there are a lot more like free trade and so on. I think that's right. Maybe there's a few that still wouldn't be great, like like Austin brought up balancing the budgets, but some of the other things, you know, the markets can work efficiently if, if people do have money to spend. Let's go to Austin. I, uh, what you just said about the budget, balancing the budgets was what I was going to come back to. And the idea of whether a basic income is a, is, is neoliberal or not. And I think this is actually the defi like it, basic income could be neoliberal if it's, if it's adopted more in the context of, okay, we are going to make balance the budget. And what we're going to do is what some right wing basic ad, uh, basic income advocates argue is that we're going to take all the social services, you know, including healthcare, including everything that the go or housing that the government might be providing, and we're going to take all that money that we're spending there and just divide it up amongst the population, rather than have these targeted programs. And that would be, you know, marketizing the government's role in all of these places. And I think that that is a neoliberal version of basic income. But the CMT version, the consumer monetary theory, um, which is, you know, I think all of us in this conversation more or less agree with this idea that actually, which is, you know, takes the MMT idea that you don't have to balance budgets um, and, and says, man, we can use that to fund a generous basic income that allows for the full output of the economy. That is not neoliberal because it, it questions the, um, the the balanced budget sort of fiscal austerity spending discipline rules, which I think are very key to the neoliberal paradigm um, and perhaps the dumbest, wrongest thing about it. Um, and we've seen that that's, that's being challenged now because of the, um, uh, the coronavirus and the recession and the, since 2008 even. Uh, governments have been sort of making exceptions um, and maybe those exceptions will become the rule. Um, but I also wanted to say um, briefly uh, mention that, so I've been working on um, an idea for a sort of general political view, which I call global social liberalism, which I've spammed some people in this group with my manuscript. One of the sections I'm going to add to that, um, that is called what neoliberalism gets right. Because I think that's, you know, you have to, you have to understand what a theory like this, it's, it's not going to be all wrong. And one of the things is like what I call superficial diversity. So neoliberalism um, and globalization also have a cultural component, called, you know, which is sometimes referred to as multiculturalism. And so the left will attack multicultural, some of the, on the, the far left will attack multiculturalism and sort of come around to a sort of almost right wing position. I'm um, thinking Slava Zizek here. And they'll say that multiculturalism is the cultural form of neoliberalism, right? Um, and but what what that means is, okay, so you can have whatever ethnic food you like, and you can, you know, wear whatever fancy ethnic dress you like, but you're all going to be subject to the same economic rules, and those economic rules need to be synchronized from country to country. 
so that we can all do business. And we all know, um, uh, you know, when, when you come in, it's sort of my, uh, my, my contract law will plug into your contract law. Um, everything will be sort of synced. You won't be speaking different languages and have wildly different regulations when you're trying to trade between countries, right? And I actually think that that's correct, that what we want is superficial diversity, that where, where thing, when things matter, when things are like have a, when I say matter, materially matter rather than, you know, spiritually or aesthetically or whatever, when it's stuff like, you know, are you going to have enough food to eat? No one wants diversity in that, right? No one wants diversity in um, are you going to get, uh, uh, are you going to get killed for saying the wrong thing? Like when it's some substantive issues, there's kind of like with medicine, there's kind of a right answer for a lot of this stuff. And you don't necessarily want to have diversity for diversity's sake when it comes to trade regulations, blah, blah, blah. I would just say that those regulations that neoliberalism has, has tried to globalize are the wrong ones. And we need ones that are more friendly to the worker or the worker consumer and the ordinary person and the environment and all of that. So one thing neoliberalism gets right, and if, and if there's a turn against neoliberalism, the baby that we don't want to throw out with that bathwater is the idea of synchronizing standards across country or harmonizing standards. The thing is what we should be doing is harmonizing them up, harmonizing them up to the higher levels of protection and worker rights and so forth, rather than harmonizing down where the first world tries to you know, compete with the third world in terms of cheap labor and, and loose environmental protections. A lot of interesting points there, you know, and we can ask the question if um, if someone who's a neoliberal uh, realizes that, um, you know, a balanced budget and fiscal austerity um, is not the way to to get markets working best for for the interest of the people, uh, then is that person going to renounce neoliberalism or are they just going to say, um, I, I guess the question is, is fiscal austerity really essential to the neoliberal paradigm? Or is it that um, they have a certain conception of how the economy works, of how markets work, and they think that fiscal austerity is necessary for that? Or not necessarily fiscal austerity, but at least balancing taxes with spending and that kind of keeping, keeping the budget uh, balanced. Um, yeah. So let's go to the podcast one more time. Liberalism. Not liberal in the way we often talk about left-wing liberals in the US, you know, people go online to own the libs, but classical liberalism. It's just a, a collective word for all those thinkers who are like moving against the church after the Renaissance, David Hume, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and, and then you associate those with political beliefs of free trade, free markets, you know, the rights for individuals to pursue their own self-interests. Most of that sounds, uh, sounds pretty good, you know, um, letting people do what they want, um, yeah, you know, free free trade, free markets in the sense of at least um, not impeding the efficiency of markets. But we do want to set um, set the parameters for markets. And I wonder if if the neoliberals um, or some of the self-identified neoliberals um, are just missing missing some understanding in terms of how to make that happen. Uh, so let's go to Neil. Go ahead, Neil. Okay, I I originally was all for uh, free trade. However, I quickly came to a conclusion that you have to uh, have self-defense, and that was very hard to see what, what exactly was self-defense meant. You, you had what, what, what industries do you have to make sure you have enough of in your country? And uh, the present situation, of course, points out one of them. 
And 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 the other thing I I more recently figured out, and I'm not the only one, is that people uh, do not uh, that the the labor market is sticky. You cannot all this beautiful theory that you're going to going to going to move your your the, the jobs for one which are best for this particular country to this country and you move the, the jobs for better for to another country doesn't really work because people get into an employment situation and they want to stay there. So you have a, 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 a real sticky situation. And in a sense, uh, I'll point out that uh, this is why some people argue that we end up with, with, with communities where everybody does something because it's more efficient to do that. And if you try and try and put, put whatever you're talking about, it's more efficient because you, you, have, you have people talking to each other, informally, normally, but they're talking to each other. And, and, and also they, they have the similar ideas. Okay, now, now I hopefully this, this Zoom thing will, will, will loosen that up a little bit. But uh, basically, people don't worry about uh, the, uh, the, 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 the friction that is inherent in, in, in an economy. And so you can change an economy rapidly, very easily. It, it doesn't, it, it, in a wartime you can, or in a Great Depression you can, but but in, in, in normal economic times, if you can get enough to eat, even if you're very low standard of living, uh, you, you'll want to stay with your group. This is human nature. And uh, we haven't, uh, and I, I don't see that going into the, into the mix of people's thinking uh, enough. That's my view anyways. Yeah, it's an interesting point about the stickiness of labor mobility and the stickiness of mobility in general. Uh, we did a whole one of these, by the way, on uh, economic mobility and the impediments to people being able to relocate and that kind of thing. Uh, so I'd encourage you to listen to that one if you haven't yet. Um, but I also think it's true that maybe neoliberals uh, underestimate the stickiness and inefficiencies in the market. Like maybe there's an assumption, especially um, among economists, it's not an assumption in the sense that they believe this is always true, but in their models, they make this assumption and then they add in uh, kind of the, the complexities later on. Uh, but they assume that prices just always ad adjust, quantities just always adjust immediately, um, you know, in their modeling. They look at two states of the world, one, you know, the state uh, when demand is at a certain level and the state when demand is at another level and then they don't uh, they don't always talk about the transition um, you know what happens when you're moving between two states of the world uh, and how complicated that can get and the reality is the real world is we're always moving between states right you never get to equilibrium right there's always changes that you're kind of catching up to and and, and moving toward uh, let's go to Derek uh, yeah I mean a lot of different points there um, I, I think it's worth I mean, you know, a lot of this points to the the um, um, the ambiguity in these terms, and um, um, I think with reference to some of what Austin was saying about how there's there's useful um, parts of neoliberalism to be understood. I, there's also so much of it that's um, uh, basic income is such a blind spot for it that it doesn't. Um, um, you know, I think I think neoliberals who 
attached to basic income and try to incorporate it into the model will then sort of be surprised at what that undoes. Um, if you think about uh, CMT, CMT is actually, well, okay, if we think about neoliberal, I'm sorry, neoliberalism um, being bad for stepping on labor unions, right? And actually, and trying to um, um, basically get more out of labor for the benefit of this global economy. Um, um, remember that in, this is in the context in the 1980s of pursuing full employment with government regulation with central bank monetary policy, right? So from that point of view, I mean, the CMT theory, um, which is going to maximize output to minimize employment is, is in, in a way radically more anti-labor, you could say, than neoliberalism was. And so um, these they they tend these tend to pull in different directions than people are are expecting. You know, when you use these terms, people will. Um, um, I think really that's why I'm trying to use this as a term that describes a particular kind of particular point in history that people attach to. Um, and like Alex is saying, the economy is always in flux; things are always changing. Um, so we really have to think about uh, moving forward and what 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 policies uh, help us adapt going forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's a sense in which basic income is compatible with a lot of different paradigms and a lot of different ideologies. Uh, and for, if we're taking the example of neoliberalism, uh, if there's someone who's a neoliberal um, and then they're thrust into a world that has basic income, they might take a look around and say, hey, yeah, this is this is more of what I want. Right. This is this is more more like what I'm going for. But if you take someone who's a Marxist and thrust someone into that world, uh, then they might say the same thing. Yeah, this is this is closer to what I want. Uh, so I think you know if you if you fix this thing that's broken in the economy, um, the people who are frustrated about it being broken and want to fix it, um, they'll all recognize that that this is the solution. And, um, you know, it can kind of uh, maybe bridge the gap even between between different ideologies. It's really funny in a way to notice that um, like the basic income and CMT view are kind of making making a dual claim that markets are both more and less efficient than people are typically recognizing. A lot of people argue for free when they're arguing for freer markets or deregulated markets. They have in mind um, an era of growth that was spurred on by policy decisions, right, by centralized policy decisions and not by uh, total deregulation, right? So then, um, so that's one thing to point out, but then from our view, um, that whole paradigm, that kind of growth is horribly inefficient in ways that nobody's talking about, that nobody's really observing. Certainly none of these camps were. So um, um, again, that's just a little, little note to, to point out just sort of how deficient some of these, um, some of these conceptualizations are for describing that phenomenon. Yeah, I think without basic income, markets don't work nearly as well as they could and as well as we imagine them to be able to work in terms of the potential for markets to, to work for the benefit of people. Let's go to Eddie. Go ahead, Eddie. So in, in talking about these terms and talking about the term neoliberalism, you know, I, I think that uh, there's some real synthesis that can be done. Um, if you think deeply enough about basic income um, and capital um, and labor, um, you know I think that you can synthesize parts of Marxism, neoliberalism, uh, MMT, Austrian economics, Kondratsky theory, um, and Keynesianism. Like parts of them, all of them actually fit into the picture, and the differences can be resolved if you if you if you think enough about about capital labor and, and, and basic income. 
Um, so, you know, to talk about just Marxism and, and neoliberalism, you know, one of the aims of, of socialism and Marxism, um, you know, classically is the ownership of the, of the means of production. Um, and if you think about what um, the means of production, what capital is, um, you know, there it there's a there kind of are multiple aspects um, to to ownership, and um, you, you know, if you if you thought about the economy in a in a in a household sense, you have. Uh, you have capital, and capital is a is a is something that that creates more production. Then you bring it into the money economy, and then you have owners of capital, and then you have customers of those other owners of capital who are who are buying the production, and and the owners of the capital um, get the money, um, you know, presumably to, to to buy something else. But there there's there's a real equivalency there if you realize that. Um, you know the production, the goods and services, and the monetary and the and the money, they are equivalent to each other, and the the money is also equivalent to ownership because the ownership is the right to that money, uh, you know, coming off of that capital. But on the other hand, you know, the, pro the problem with the current system is that the entire system is is under is under underutilized, and because the consumers don't have that money to begin with, they don't have enough of it. Um, you know, the capital is sitting there. Idle with uh, you know with 29% uh, idle capacity in the economy right now, similar to the Great Depression, early Great Depression. Um, and if you just give people money, that is equivalent to to ownership. And on the other hand, um, you know to realize that uh, if you understand what's wrong with the system, you understand that uh, in in a way Marxism is correct. That if somehow just Kind of ideally, you know, hopefully without um, violence or whatever. If everybody owned capital, um, capital consumption theory says that because the capital income is is sufficiently distributed, um, everybody would have. Uh, we would not have the problem of underutilized cap uh, capacity, but we do have that problem um, because of the concentration, for whatever reason, of that capital ownership to the wealthy. And they and the wealthy get you know have so much income that they cannot spend it, um, and the people who need the income to spend they they don't have it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a yeah. It's almost like a maze. Like I feel like I'm circling, but there's a there's a point in there. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly where it is, but you know the whole thing. It's a it's a picture. I like your point about the framing, right? Um, so money is a claim on the economy's output. And if everyone has money uh, as in, you know, a basic income system, then everyone in a sense uh, has an ownership claim on the economy's productive capacity. So in that sense, you are using the markets to achieve kind of the communist idea ideal of of shared ownership of of the economy's potential um, and uh, Philippe von Parijs um, wrote an article back in the 1980s that we actually talked about in here called uh, a capitalist road to communism where he talked about uh, basic income as as kind of bridging that gap uh, so you guys should check out that episode if you want to if you want to hear more about that um, but yeah basic income gives people control over the means of production in the sense that it gives 
people access to the means of consumption. It is the means of consumption and we produce to consume. So, so that, that's kind of what it means to, to, own, to own it, right? Um, so let's go to the podcast. They believed in the need for unconditional free trade. They believed in the, the need for the free movement of capital over borders as a way to ensure a kind of interdependence that would itself hopefully guarantee peace in the long run. Peace in the long run. So, so that's an interesting point. If we're all in a global economy together and we're all trading with each other, then when our trading partners suffer, we suffer too. Uh, so it's kind of this way to to give everyone um, kind of skin in the cooperative uh, global game. And I think this is something that neoliberals, um, even people who call themselves neoliberals today, often talk about that, um, you know, it's it's about um, kind of bringing everyone together in, in, in kind of a globalized globalized community. They just might not be getting uh, some some of the particulars uh, it's quite right or or. Uh, designing them in a way that's that's optimal for the benefit of everyone. Uh, go ahead, Austin. Yeah, so look, I just wanted to um, compliment what you and Eddie were saying. Um, you kind of covered half of what I was going to say, but the other half I was going to say is like, we can actually look at what happened with work, happens with worker-owned businesses that get tried, um, you know, either in the context of a market economy like in Spain or, um, uh, you know, in, or in Europe, there's a fair few of them, or the U.S., right, um, and Australia, or in the context of, you know, like revolutionary, quote unquote, countries like Venezuela and stuff. And they do have um, sort of inherent problems that they run into again and again. And one of the, so for example, um, uh, if, if we all, if we make bicycles and there's a company and there's 10 of us and we make 10 bicycles a day, right, uh, and they sell for, and, and, and you know, bringing in an 11th person allows us to make 11 bicycles a day, then none of us, none of us 10 people who run the factory are actually better, any better off. Because one more worker means one more, um, uh, what, you know, you increase the workforce 10%, you increase income 10% for the company, but everyone's take-home pay stays the same. So there's not actually this drive to expand so then, you then if you put them in competition with capitalist country, companies, where the where the person who's running is like, well, if I get eleven employees making eleven bicycles a day, my income goes up by ten percent, right? They will optimize and they will make all their choices towards expanding, and they'll eat up the whole market. Economies of scale kick in, and and so forth. So then you have to prevent any capitalist activity from happening, and you quickly spill over into this, you know, um, oppressive. Uh, state where the state isn't facilitating stuff, the state is shutting stuff down, right? So I can't hire someone and pay them a wage to expand my business necessarily, right? And so that's where this idea of worker ownership, direct worker ownership does sort of um, flounder on the rocks when, it, when it's tried. There's, there's a, the, the, the incentives for a capitalist manager are different from the incentives for a worker manager. And that, um, that means that, the, the, the idea of direct ownership has uh, direct worker ownership has hit its limits. And, you know, so you get, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a worker ownership movement. There are people who promote co-ops and stuff. And I'll always be talking about, you know, like, well, look, we can, we've got this company and there's Mondragon, I think it's called in uh, uh, Spain, which is the biggest one. And it's like, and they make bicycles and washing machines and, and various things. And it's like, yeah, well, they're not making computer chips are they? Right, and they're not making rockets. They're not. They're nowhere near the um, cutting edge 
of uh, manufacturing and production because a worker owned, and I mean, this is why some people will kind of like them as well, is a worker owned business or something like that is less aggressive. It's, it's, it's sort of D, the DNA of a worker owned business is not as, it's not as uh, aggressively expansionist. So you can imagine context in which that's really, um, that's fine. Like um, some people talk about, you know, you, 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 if you have an, what's like, you, you do uh, attached to what are called anchor institutions. So you might have, say you've got a local council and it needs the garbage picked up, right? And then rather than hiring a private company, you could hire a worker-owned garbage cooperative because there's not really, they don't really need to grow. They service one customer and they know what the size of their market is and how big they need to be and so on, right? Um, however, there, there, there are hard limits to that. So that's why I think, you know, basic income is an interesting way of sort of squaring that circle and achieving sort of virtual simulated worker ownership of the whole economy. I think that's right. Um, and there are other kind of like corporate social responsibility goals that, you know, at least some people want businesses to um, have as part of their objectives. But at the end of the day, it's hard to create uh, a non-competitive business or it's hard to keep it alive unless you also create an environment that protects it from losing out to competition. So that leads to kind of like all the complexity that, that you were talking about, Austin. The other thing is that they sell them. So the workers will own a cab company, for example, and they'll say, we've got this, um, you know, use them will set up this worker-owned business um, and then, you know, some capitals to come along and say, great business you've got here. How about I keep you all on as employees? And I buy the business from you and you all get, you know, $50,000 or something, right? So they, they would prefer money to shares. And so you have um, people on the left who are like, no, you're not supposed to want the money. So like, actually, we don't want you to own it because ownership implies the right to sell, right? So it comes back to you, then you end up having this, you can't just create worker-owned businesses inside an existing market economy without sort of outlawing and prohibiting a bunch of a bunch of activities like you know being a shareholder or mergers and acquisitions or blah 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 right um, and now maybe there's a moral case that this is that, that, that you need to do that maybe there's a moral case that's like well slavery plantations were more competitive than non-slavery plantations so you had to outlaw slavery and you had to just murder all the people who were doing it until it became morally unacceptable um, but that's a that's but that's a case you've got to then make uh, you've got to convince enough people that the exploitation of, you know, uh, of in capitalism is so bad that we you need to use violence on a large scale to prevent it. Like we had to use violence on a large scale to prevent a lot of bad things. And we could even say that uh, instead of worker-owned businesses, you could have a consumer-owned economy. So that way the people are the ones who kind of have the power and have the control and have the ownership. And that's what basic income gets you, at least part of the way, and it does it through market mechanisms. Let's go to Bethany. I liked a lot of what Austin said. Some of those points I hadn't thought deeply about before, like the difference between the incentives that, you know, collectively individuals owning a company would have versus one owner. So it was cool. So thanks, thanks Austin. Um, I was actually going to speak to the quote that you had from the, or the sort of section from the podcast. So um, I haven't done like in-depth research about this, but it certainly resonates with me that the more you have aligned interests between different countries, the, the better for other kinds of, you know, for, for peace basically, right? Because there's a bigger disincentive to get into conflict. Um, and it does seem like that is a benefit of free trade in addition to it being more efficient and a sort of disadvantage of trying to um, say prop up your workers wages at the expense of other countries or like that kind of thing. Um, and certainly people who uh, have tried to argue that in general, violence and 
so on has gone down over time, uh, one of the possibilities uh, raised, one of the possible explanations raised is like greater interconnectivity economically. Um, I don't know that that's been like definitively proven or anything, but that's certainly out there um, as an idea as a sort of a long-term historical trend also. Um, and you can even imagine this, like, I think he, they, they even talk about it from smaller scale to slightly larger scale to even larger scale and so on. Um, like when, when tribes are just kind of like raiding each other's cows versus like they actually have some kind of trade relationship that might disincentivize them from raiding each other's cows <laughs> all the way up to like what we think of as, as modern nation states. So um, anyway, I thought that was a good point and, uh, and a benefit of, of international trade that's separate from its economic efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and we saw that and I think this was like one of the main um, stated goals of bringing together the European countries into uh, the shared economic zone and the shared political zone. Um, and the shared, the shared monetary zone. Uh, go ahead, Derek. Yeah, I was going to speak to that too. Um, although, you know, um, I'm not quite so sure. I, I think it's absolutely true when you align people's incentives, uh, they're much less likely to conflict. Um, but of course, the neoliberal claim really is, is by opening up free trade, right, between countries internationally, this lowers the, the incidence of war or conflict. Uh, I think I remember, I remember even some quotes about, you know, like, well, the more McDonald's there are in a place then the less, the less chances there are those two countries will go to war something like that. Well, maybe, but, um, you know, and, and we only have to look at sort of the great wars of this past century to see that, um, uh, you know, very developed thriving uh, economies that traded with each other and were connected in a lot of ways uh, have erupted into um, horrible conflict in the past. Uh, it didn't, the, the fact that money was going across borders and goods were going across borders did not seem to prevent um, that all being sort of shut down quite suddenly to pursue um, something else, rather less cooperative. And even today, you know, if you think about the US and China, where there's a limitless cornucopia of, of goods being exchanged and money being ex exchanged, politically, the story, the narrative that we're telling is very frequently one of sort of um, competition and, you know, we're worried about the rise of China. This is, you know, just everywhere. Um, and so I think a lot of that, you know, very similar to, to earlier stages of history. So, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I definitely agree that the more that you actually really align the people's incentives and, um, and benefit, real benefit, like the more likely it is um, that those people will, will find ways to cooperate. Um, but that's, simply the fact that you have a lot of firms and corporations and entities exchanging goods and money. Maybe that's not quite it. Maybe the people who make up all of those firms and countries, maybe they all need to be benefiting um, together because it's clearly the case that we've um, put ourselves in situations where a lot of people in these countries are not benefiting. And there's an, actually by going to war, oftentimes there's a rather perverse incentive to um, to actually benefit, people actually benefit more when their countries spend a bunch on war, of course, until one of them loses, then it's a big problem. Um, so that's just something to, to keep in mind, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting point. If there are firms trading with each other, um, certainly there are some disadvantages there if two countries go to war and they're doing a lot of trade with each other, um, but it's something that we've seen time and time again. 
But on the other hand, you have multinational corporations. So if you say half of all McDonald's restaurants are in the United States and the other half of all McDonald's restaurants are in China, then McDonald's is going to have a really big problem with the United States going to war with China. So there's some incentives there um, at the level of the firm where um, if, they've, if they've got an international presence, then um, and that gets Cut, cut in half or cut off, um, then that then that can be a pretty big deal. Uh, and and my sense is that you know our trade, you know we had in the 20th century we had these two kind of communist superpowers. We had Soviet Russia and we had China, um, and we were always more in danger of going to war. Uh, yeah, and the then the Cold War was was more about Russia than it was about China, and I think a big part of that is, especially in the 1970s, um, we started trading with China more and more and more, and we remained cut off from the Soviet Union. So China never officially, you know, had a um, revolution that overthrew communism or anything like that, unlike Russia. Um, but they did um, gradually start to get more uh, entangled with us economically. Uh, and that's kind of what neutralized them as a threat. And then we can worry that if we're imposing all these tariffs on China, if we have a trade war, if you're not allowed to buy you know, Chinese brand phones in the United States and stuff like that, you can worry that that creates um, this kind of division that would allow, allow for more conf conflict. Um, let's go to uh, one more clip from the podcast. Countries like the US, UK, they lowered top tax rates, they lowered trade tariffs, they deregulated banks, they weakened labor unions and freed up market forces. This created a lot of winners. It also left a lot of people behind. And there was a backlash. Neoliberalism almost became a political swear word. Neoliberalism almost became a political swear word. And you have to wonder if basic income had been part of the picture during this, would anyone have gotten left behind? And would neoliberalism have become a political swear word? If neoliberals at the time included basic income as part of their, you know, getting markets to work for people, since it wouldn't have hurt people, maybe people wouldn't have bothered so much about defining it as this kind of market fundamentalist negative thing that leaves people behind because it wouldn't be leaving people behind. One of the things I learned in the last year or two uh, is that there was a, a book that was written, I forget the exact tag, but it was kind of like the end of war or, or, or something like that. And the argument was made that because of, you know, the immense amount of trade that is, that, that is now going on, um, you know, between nations, uh, you know, nations no longer have an incentive to go to war with each other because that, that ruins the trade. And the thing is that the book was written in 1910, just prior to the First World War. Um, and if you look at the data, um, you know, it was actually the, you know, the prior to the Great Depression, um, you know, 1920s was actually the, the peak um, in global trade, um, the last peak. And then they started, you know, putting on those tariffs. They started having some of the same problems that we're having now. And it's driven by, again, wealth inequality. Um, and you have suffering, you know, suffering populace, uh, you know, suffer, suffering workers. And um, in a lot of politicians find that it works. It's a successful, you know, tactic for them uh, to blame this on uh, other countries. Uh, you know, one of uh, Hitler and Mussolini's, you know, big tactics was to, was to say, was to demonize other countries and say, oh, you know, you know, England, Great Britain and, you know, other countries, they're all working against us and this is why we're suffering. 
And so I think it's kind of interesting. I, I feel like what happened was that we kind of solved the Great Depression without ever actually realizing um, what caused it. Uh, we kind of just bumbled our way through it and, 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 and we got past it. But if you, you know, we're, but we're in a very, you know, a, a, a very worrisome situation right now. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic because, you know, the world, you know, economies have developed, you know, substantially in the last eight years. So everybody's not quite as close to, um, say, starvation as they were, you know, maybe 80, 100 years ago. Um, so I'm cautiously, cautiously optimistic that it, it might, we might not go down the same path again. But it's it's definitely worrisome. There, there are many um, similarities between the, the two the two areas. Yeah, and I guess so. A question is, how can you get people to be so dependent on each other that they're that they're not going to fight? And of course, we see you know feuds happen within families, and you know uh, children not talking to their parents, and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, so you know that's probably the kind of the closest relationship that we can imagine, right? Uh, and even there, uh, sometimes it doesn't work out. Um, but maybe maybe at a larger scale, if if everything's just kind of enmeshed, the more it's enmeshed, the the less you have a chance of of ripping it apart. Or in order to rip it apart, it takes it takes more of a process and over time kind of thing. Let's go to Derek. To, to a little bit, I mean, of an extent, I think that's true, but I also agree with what Eddie pointed out, that that sort of looked true in the in 1910s, and yes, we're more enmeshed now than we were, but at the end of the day, the decision to go to war, you know, is not made by CEOs or, or companies or the market in general, it is discretionary fiscal policy is what it is, and the fact is that so long as that whenever we're, we are um, operating the economy underneath its true economic capacity, there will always be an incentive um, to use discretionary policy to create unnecessary work for people to do. And the model that you know I'm using to just to think of as of war here is really as that as, as unnecessary uh, form of fiscal policy, a particularly unpleasant one. And it, it is possibly true. I suppose it is possibly true that 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 um, a certain level of market international connectedness would would uh, render it impractical for large nations to go to war, although they might still go to war against smaller ones, which they were not very interconnected with, and maybe some of those will always be around. Um, but, but, but that doesn't solve the problem of, uh, so long as you have a serious amount of capacity that's, that's untapped, and you can untap it just by coming up with something to do that's not really necessary, we'd all rather just be prosperous instead of shipping off to fight in trenches somewhere. Um, as long as it's the case, you at least have a risk or danger of that. Um, if not war, something kind of like it, which is a little less unpleasant, but still a horrible waste of time. And, um, 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 you know, I think when we look around, you look at the political rhetoric today, there's an immense, uh, immense um, a trend to look at a, in a positive light as the, the 1940s and the post-World War II um, policies as what sort of got us out of the Great Depression. Um, that's very common, you know, and so maybe people won't say, well, we should go to war, we should invent an enemy like Nazi Germany and go to war with it to, to cure the, our economic woes. But people are still thinking of that as the solution. They're thinking of um, a large big project that we all get together in and we do it and then, and then uh, you know, our troubles are solved. And I, I would say, you know, maybe, maybe perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps what we call war is, uh, you know, is maybe inevitable, um, so long as that's an option. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And to try to 
tie it into what I was saying before, to the extent that we have the capacity, we have excess capacity, uh, we have capacity to cut off trade with our partners and we have capacity to go to war with them um, if we wanna activate that capacity for our economy. And I think that's what you're getting at. Um, if basic income, in a basic income world, maybe um, you're getting the most you can out of the economy and that includes getting the most you can out of trade. So war starts to look a lot more expensive. Uh, let's go to Richard. One way to avoid war was political marriage between a king and a princess or something like that of another country. And another way is, well, there was this country in, there is a country in Africa over the past like 50 years that they've never had any sort of like civil war or anything like that. It's because they, they're their public employee, public uh, employees and whatever take up like 80% of the economy. And so they shuffle around their, their, their like teachers all around the country and they're like intermarry between the tribes. And so um, they say, what tribe are you? It's like a common question. And they say, I'm of this country or whatever. I forget which country. And so that's one way to do it. So if you, a lot of what's happening with the interconnected global economy is that we're people are going to school in the US or in Europe or something like that and they find the, our wife or whatever there and then they have their children and they're like what are you I'm American and British or something and so when you have enough people that are intermarried then it's less likely that they'll go to war I like that you know a question we can ask is what can we do to get people to feel um, more like they're all in the same in-group right? They're all part of the same community. Um, and basic income certainly, um, even without getting getting us to think that, you know, people in China are still our people or something like that, um, it creates an incentive for us not to go to war with China. And maybe once we're all cooperating, uh, thanks to a basic income and other, other measures not making us need to protect ourselves and fight the outgroup and that kind of thing, then kind of organically, we can start thinking uh, of ourselves more as one big in-group. Um, but there's other forces in globalization that help us kind of come together in that way. And uh, and I think I think that's important too. I think I think I think all these factors are real. Let's go to Austin. First of all, about the McDonald's thing, I'm pretty sure the line was no no two countries that had McDonald's in them have ever gone to war, and it was true until the US bombed Serbia um, in the 90s. So it was um, so it was true for a very specific, discrete amount of time, um, and then stopped being true very quickly. I think it's worth noting that. Um, war is actually always counterproductive and bad. Like, there's not really ever a good rational case for war. All you can ever say is, well, the other guy is being more irrational and I have to defend myself because I'm not the crazy person who's starting it, right? Um, but I think there's a Nash equilibrium thing there where, you know, it's rational for each actor to pursue a, a course which ends up being irrational for the whole group. Um, but I'd also add that a conflict is caused a lot of the time wars are to do with domestic politics not with um uh, domestic politics drives foreign policy and so what happens there's a feedback loop where you have increasing global trade that creates dislocation and hurts like specific populations within the country um creates inequality like in the 1930s like now right where some people are left out 
and the 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 globalists don't care about me is the feeling so then the nationalists must um and that's that's the danger of of the of the current moment sort of echoing the 1930s um which comes back to yeah what you said with with, with the actual the, the last clip was would a basic income have prevented that and stopped people being left behind and prevented that dislocation i think there's also an interesting point um uh about how well if we had an economy that was operating at or close to capacity diverting weapons for war would be diverting spending for war would be harmful to the population so the population would be you know disincentivized to back it um i think that that's that's an interesting that's another case for the basic income but just on the question of would people feel is left behind that depends if it was a um a sort of liberal uh so not, not liberal a, um, a a generous basic income that wasn't constrained by the budget by tax receipts or whether it was a even within that there's some you know um wiggle room so if you had very high taxes on the rich allowing you to pay a very strong basic income without um uh, going running a running a deficit that might work but just if you just had some sort of drip feed basic income you know the neoliberal basic income that everyone's afraid of then i don't think that would have the the, the, the basic income that the left um caricature all basic income proposals as that it's going to be this this tiny amount that's not enough to live on but just sort of keeps you from uh starvation and keeps you in this sort of um uh you know minimal minimal maintenance sort of of the population then i don't think that would have prevented people feeling like they were left behind you know there's there's um a degree there's welfare like in australia at least i'm talking about that there's pretty decent welfare system um so it's very like very few people um people end up in poverty um but only in relative poverty and they end up in um uh, insecure housing but rarely do you know they die of cold in the street or starve or or anything like that right so the, if you have a basic income that just does that that keeps people just alive then i don't think that that's that much better than what we've got now whereas if you had it so so neoliberalism would need to ditch either one other thing as well it, it would have to, to come up with go, uh, agree to a basic income then either ditch low taxes or ditch the balanced budgets to make that basic income you know the the, the livable you know comfortable uh living basic income otherwise you're going to have still have populations uh that are discontent turning towards some kind of radical politics which can be radical nationalism which can lead to you know irrational conflict and war yeah um i think you're right that if people have just barely enough to survive um then they're not going to feel like they're they're full um participants of society and they're gonna or or um that they're getting the full benefit of the economy they might feel like they're being left behind uh you said that that was relative poverty i wouldn't say that that's relative poverty i would say that that's that's a form of absolute poverty you know you're you're barely kind of kind of uh kind of scraping by you've got the bare minimum that's that's an absolute thing it's not relative to how how many billions of dollars the richest person has um so um uh, and I would also add that a small basic income uh, that's not kind of calibrated to the natural level, it leaves open this, this problem that Derek was talking about. It's not going to close the gap between uh, economic output uh, and the productive capacity of the economy. So you still have this uh, kind of uh, 
economic cushion that allows you to go to war uh, without making your your people any poorer and perhaps uh, making them richer. Um, and I think you know it's like you were saying. I think it's true to some extent that war is always irrational, um, at least from the welfare perspective of everyone involved. Right? You're just wasting resources fighting each other. Um, you know, obviously in the end, maybe the winners will be better off, uh, and 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 that's an incentive for them. Um, but if your economy is broken, uh, then otherwise irrational uh, thinking uh, or irrational ideas start to become rational in the context of your of your broken economy. With inequality, right? There's, this is this is we should do another one just on inequality, although you probably already have. But the um, uh, the, it depends on there's different shapes to inequality. So I think a lot of the time when um, CMT guys like you and Derek talk about inequality you're talking about the 99 versus 1% inequality, right? So there's lots of different shapes that the graph can take. And what we actually have in Australia is we have a much stronger middle. So we have that spike at the, at the top end, but it's not so high. But then you have an underclass who are less well off than, than that. The, you have a big middle class and then you have an underclass who exist in precarious work and in on the welfare system um, who are, suffer a lot and i'm not and, and some of that is just relative poverty where it's a matter of um you know you might be um you might actually be able to afford a house somewhere or something but you're pushed to the social margins and you can't really but you kind of get stuck in this particular stratum of society so when this is where you know in in one sense if, if you have a, a graph where everybody's the same and then you have you know like the god emperor king or whatever this one person who's stupidly rich and everybody else is sort of relatively moderately okay in some ways that's not as as cruel a an inequality curve as one where say everybody's fine except one person who we hold down in the mud and you know they have to live off scraps while every like while everybody you know like there's these different kinds of inequality and that's why i really think you have to think of inequality in a social context and why you know relative poverty matters which i think reflects on neoliberalism neoliberalism doesn't i think um have as much of a concern about um, the the social fabric. I mean, that's one of the criticisms of it that it it tears up the social fabric, and and one of those things is what I would call a gently sloping um, uh, income curve. So the that there aren't these huge, you know, the, these big class jumps between poor, middle class, rich, which become social in nature, not just economic. Okay, let's go to the podcast again. A lot of neoliberal policies have been associated with rising inequality. And in 2016, these people that had been left behind by the global economy, they voted. And we had another tectonic shift. We are going to bring back the jobs and the wealth that have been stolen from us. There's Donald Trump uh, talking about jobs. And uh, it's not, you know, like all politicians talk about jobs. And that's very much, I think, focusing on job creation is, is kind of an anti-neoliberal thing as well. Go ahead, Derek. Yeah, I have to formulate think about what that last quote, but um, I, I did want to briefly just say that I like Austin's point about how you can make a case for there being this neoliberal basic income where it's a very tiny amount and then you, you remove all the government else. And that's sort of the, the caricature of what the left is afraid of. I think we usually, or at least I usually like to make the point that like, well, any basic income is better than zero, but um, that's exactly why I ended up sort of in the CMT camp eventually, because I didn't have a good answer for why the basic income should ever be lower than it can be. For me, that addresses that concern. I could get more into the relative poverty stuff, but I'm, I want to think more about this, the clip Alex played. 
when people talk about uh, kind of a neoliberal or, or right basic income, they're thinking about it as this kind of, uh, and this is actually how Milton Friedman talked about basic income when he was talking about it. He was talking about it in the form of a negative income tax, but it was basically the same thing. He was talking about kind of consolidating all the welfare programs uh, and then reducing the amount until it was gone. So you, so you just simplify and then destroy, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That is maybe what people would think of as kind of like a neoliberal form of basic income. But if the neoliberals truly want to get markets working for the benefit of the people, they're going to want to maximize the basic income. So I think that basic income in the way that we think about it in, in the sense of, of getting the most out of the markets and the most out of the economy is very much compatible with at least the ultimate level of, of neoliberal ideology that you really want markets to be efficient and, and effective. Let's go to Bethany. This comment kind of bridges the last two um, things from the podcast, but I first wanted to just emphasize what I think you also said, which is that if interconnectedness of trade and so on decreases the um, chance of going to war, it's just going to decrease the chance. It's not like they're we can't necessarily look at historical case studies where there nevertheless was war and, and disagree with that hypothesis. Obviously, it's hard to get like a good data set in history because everything is such an nice sort of like there aren't so many samples. This is such a good sample size of different like major wars and so on. But nevertheless, we the fact that the world wars, for example, followed more trade doesn't mean that conflict would, didn't go down overall more than it would have without that interconnected trade. That would be a harder question to answer. Um, and so I wanted to point that out. And, and I also think that you know, it's kind of an all else being equal thing. So all else being equal, the, this sort of interconnected trade aligns incentives against conflict. But as, as Derek and other people pointed out, maybe um, there are still other incentives to do it as like a make work program. And also maybe if you do policies, if your trade policies make people poorer or create certain kinds of key types of inequality, as Austin was pointing out, that could be a different kind of incentive to, to, to create more conflict with other countries, like to protect the particular industries that are hurt and, and those jobs and so on. So it might have like secondary effects that work in the opposite direction. I think that's kind of just summing up like some of what people have been saying. And it certainly relates to the quote that we just heard also this, this sort of idea that um, in a way it's a special interest, right? So like specific people who would have had the jobs that have been lost or whatever, but it could be quite a large special interest. And then those people can be very important to the political process, especially in our country where we have sort of an interesting situation where not all votes are counted equally and so on. Certain like special um, interests based on jobs can have a really big impact. Um, and I'm sure that's true in other countries as well and for different reasons. I think labor is a really huge special interest in most places, but maybe not so much in a basic income world. So that might help too. Let's go to Neil. I think most wars are, are, do, are for resources. You, you may want to steal the other person's resource or uh, the latest war, which is going on now in Azerbaijan, that in that case, uh, Armenia had a very good, the people in Karakhan had a very good point. Uh, they, in World War One, there was a genocide against Armenia, and uh, there they are in the middle of uh, of Azerbaijan, and 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 no land route to to get to Armenia. So they went to war to get such a land route. And uh, of course, war is never nice. But uh, so, so, so now we're having another war because when they did that, a lot of the people left voluntarily because they didn't want to be under Armenian rule. But some of them were just pushed out, you know, good old ethnic cleansing. So, so now, 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 of course, the populace in, in, uh, in uh, Abidjan 
They're saying, well, we're going to go, we're going to get our, our land back. And so, they're, they're not, but of course, Armenia thinks of it as an existential threat. Because if they lose, they think, think they're, 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 they're all dead. So, uh, yeah, so, so I don't think, so very often the wars are not due to, uh, are due to sensible things. Japan went to a war against us in World War II because we, we, we blockaded them and they couldn't get any steel. They couldn't, they were having, uh, their economy was in real trouble. So uh, they went to war. So I, I, I don't uh, think that looking at that war is uh, that, uh, I, I don't, I, I, it is often has a rationale to it. Now, uh, the rationale may, uh, you know, it, it may be weak, but, but, they, they, but either the leader points out rationale of the sort I'm talking about, or there actually is a rationale. Uh, so, uh, so I don't see war as, 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 as uh, just something irrational. It's, 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 it's normally a fight over resources. Whether you want to be the only, you want to be the guy who has all the cattle, because if you don't have all the cattle, you you're you're in trouble, or the, or the other guys have all the cattle. It, that's that's my point. Anyways, I'll shut up. You're perfectly right that war always does have some kind of rationale. Um, so it's rational on one level, approximately. You know, there's a reason why you're going to war, that kind of thing. What's maybe irrational is why do we tend to end up in situations where we find ourselves needing to fight over resources, right? Um, and it's not maybe, you know, maybe maybe there's rational things that led to that too. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of it is unnecessary. Uh, and, and that's where I think, you know, uh, basic income can come in. And, you know, instead of fighting over resources, we can we can trade resources with each other. And and that's where, where neoliberalism comes in. As long as we're on the war point, I like what Bethany said. It's a very good point that you can't just, um, some the fact that something happened in history at a certain time and it was really dramatic, it doesn't say anything about the long-term trend. Um, although, you know, there's debate about whether or not that's even the the right way to think about it. Um, as a, just as a side note, there's a one of the most interesting things I ever read was a debate of, as, a, as an exchange of papers between um, Steven Pinker and Nassim Taleb on this point. One person trying to say that, look, things are getting better, war is decreasing in incidence over time, and to like shooting back and saying, well, actually, reducing the incidence rate isn't our goal. Our goal is avoiding horrible catastrophes that are rare and really, really damaging. And it does seem to be that um, as you, we've reduced the rate of um, smaller conflicts occurring between smaller groups of people, um, we also develop um, technologies that can uh, extend this in really uh, unusual and strange and cruel ways. Um, so maybe they're happening less frequently, but um, some really, really, really awful stuff happens. Um, and maybe we've developed the capacities to erase large portions of us at the same time, that sort of thing. Um, so, but the point, I think with Alex's point that, yeah, there's something about it that's unnecessary because if the idea is that this is because of resources or land or something that's perceived that we don't have enough of, but we actually do have enough of it, right? Then if we see of that sort of spinning wheel of catastrophe where, well, however bad it is when it lands or however often the bad point we, we get the, the bad slot, like that's, well, okay, that's a debate we can have, but then like the real question is, well, is it possible for that to just stop spinning? Do we, do we have to spin the wheel so like at all? Um, is there a way to actually just 
get off of that entirely. And even that I think is probably most realistically, most helpfully framed from a perspective of like reducing the chances of it. But there is, there is always the outside possibility that it's almost entirely unnecessary. And that would be nice. That would be nice if it turned out to be, to be that way. If not, then of course, one thing we can use discretionary fiscal policy for is ways to avoid going to war, right? Ways to decrease the, to dampen the effects of it if it does happen, that sort of thing. And that's not too different from normal and we can continue the, the, the March of Progress narrative. Okay, great. Let's listen to one more clip from the podcast, and then we will go into final thoughts. We know that the US voted for President Donald Trump on a nationalistic platform. The UK voted for Brexit. Now we see tariffs being put back up, like between China and the US. And in reaction against that, some people have started to call themselves neoliberal again. It is kind of a bit punk in the sense that to call yourself a neoliberal now is really transgressive to say, like, this is, this is how we self-identify when all of the political energy that we see is going in the other direction. So this is kind of what I was getting at with the, with the shock value thing before. Um, so let's go around and get people's final thoughts. I'm going to change up the order a bit since Derek just talked. So we'll move Derek to the end and we'll go to Bethany and then Richard. Great discussion. I think that, um, again, as we said, the really broad definition of neoliberalism in the podcast is maybe not controversial, at least among a lot of Americans, but um, but then the the term has become associated with particular implementations or like particular schools of thought and a particular period of history, which is maybe a more narrow view of how to use markets to benefit people. Uh, and I guess my final thought is just I do really feel like if you want to use markets to benefit people, you have to deal with this money distribution thing that I brought up at the beginning. So I, I think I'll just reemphasize that basic income can really help the pros um, outweigh the cons of of allowing the market to, to work for what it works for. And I guess one last thing that we talk about many other times, we didn't talk about it as much this time, is of course, um, maybe maybe part of the key is to think about what should be handled by the market and what should, you know, so maybe some things are not well handled by the market, even with the basic income, uh, roads, Neil brought up the military, maybe healthcare, these kinds of things. So um, I think there's also that balance to keep in mind that I would add to my own thinking um, about this kind of topic. Okay, great. Let's go to Richard and then Eddie and then Derek. The whole thing about neoliberalism, as I, as I think of it, is that they're trying to spread like globalism and getting rid of the differences between cultures. Like we're shifting our uh, telemarketing and whatnot to India and the Philippines and things. And so we're trying to make other countries have English as a second language and eventually make it their first language. And so have similar cultures and eating habits and things, even though maybe those eating habits aren't particularly good for them, like they're becoming massively obese because they're not used to those sorts of things. As we keep going along, these cultures clash like in the Middle East, a lot of people still think of the Crusades as modern history or whatever for them. And that's part of their reasoning for the whole, like September 11th and whatnot. Yeah, interesting. Let's go to Eddie and then Derek. Um, I'm very supportive of uh, resolving uh, the differences between Marxism and, and neoliberalism um, through basic income and through uh, you know, making uh, everybody a, a, an owner of, of, of our economy. Um, and I also want to 
add to that that um, y- you know it's it's a it's a necessary step that part of what you get from thinking about that um, you know capitalist consumer worker circle is that uh, if you don't put in this basic income you know you eventually get to a point which we're getting to now where we'll begin to see uh, that this whole system start to stall out likely very likely that we'll we'll see the whole system start to stall out because without that basic income that the capital itself is unable to increase and 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 it is unable to realize its value because you know a, a factory that sits empty is half of the time is half as valuable as a as a factory that's that that's that's, that's always working interesting point will we see our economy stall out or maybe we could ask the question whether our current economy is stalled out compared to where we could be and we've been stalled out. Go ahead, Derek, final thoughts. Ultimately, how I look at this is from the perspective of, you know, is the neoliberalism term useful? Is it is this a useful way to advocate for basic income or for anything else for that matter? And actually, before I was ever sort of waylaid by the idea of a basic income, the problem I was working on or thinking a lot about was basically what's the difference between an ideology and a theory or a model? Like, is there no difference? Are these just synonyms? And I, I sort of, my working conclusion on that was that, well, there is sort of a difference. There seems to be something changes when something becomes what people sometimes call a movement, right? There's usually an expectation that there's sort of a group of people associated with a series of ideas. And there's there's a there's betting on, on enough people accumulating under this label in order to get something done. And you know, I, I think the whole advantage of basic income is that you we don't you don't really have to do that, right? I mean, if you have a theory and if you have a, a model of policy, I think that's a different way of approaching these macro issues that can be useful. I mean, a theory is much more flexible than than a movement or a group which can acquire all of these connotations, can acquire disagreeing groups of different people. The theory is something that, you know, it's, it's a model, you come up with it, you don't identify with it, you can add evidence to it or take evidence away. You can actually, um, if later it turns out that you, you were wrong, you can take the best stuff out of it and create a new theory, a new model and say, actually, I changed my mind. Sorry, guys. And that actually happens a lot in science. And usually there's some embarrassment around that uh, in people's personal or careers and that sort of thing. Uh, that's actually part of the process. And it's and that I find very useful and constructive in a way that I don't really find this other stuff. So there certainly is shock value to trying to rescue the neoliberal neoliberalism with basic income, but I don't attach much value to that shock value. Yeah, it's it's hard to change your mind in a political movement because the belief is part of the identity that you create for yourself. And I think you're right, Derek. I think we can view neoliberalism as an ideology that's compatible with basic income, as many ideologies are, but I'm not sure that we'd want to call basic income a neoliberal policy in much the way that we wouldn't call it a Marxist policy, even though it's also compatible with what Marxists want. It's compatible with what a lot of people want. Everybody wants a better world, or most people want a better world for humanity and a better society for humanity. So that's the end of our discussion for today. Next week's topic is subsistence UBI, and we're bringing in two featured guests from the UK, Barb Jacobson and Jeff Crocker. So I hope people can make it out to that one. 